I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. If all the roads we have to walk are winding and all the lights that lead us there are blinding, I'm guessing this is the right moment to inform you I get a queasy stomach really easily. My name is Justin Hamilton and you're carefully making your way to Big Squid. In today's episode, we have award-winning Australian journalist Rachel Brown talking about what goes into producing her brilliant podcast, Trace, and how she chose to follow up her all-conquering first series. Rachel is one of the nicest and most thoughtful people I know, so if you're a fan of her podcast, you'll enjoy hearing her talk about the craft and even sharing with me what she does to blow off some steam uh, in, in the couple of minutes that she gets free at this point in her life. Then Ben Elwood returns for our Christopher Nolan love fest as we discuss the lost Nolan classic Insomnia, starring Al Pacino, Robin Williams and Hilary Swank. But before we do that, I wanted to share with you a short story I read over the weekend. I'm a big fan of the TV series Mad Men and for my money, it's the most consistent series made this century. Like, I know there's probably other TV series that have bigger highs or maybe moments that hit you harder, but The Adventures of Don Draper and Co. consistently hit the sweet spot in the pilot and never wavered right up until that final scene. If anything, I think that consistency is kind of held against it, because after a while, you just expected it to be great with every episode. So by about season four, you go, oh, yeah, 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 Mad Men. And it's like, no, no, it's still as good as ever. I recently finished a rewatch and was reading various articles about the series and I kept coming across the name of the author John Cheever. Now before we go any further, I'm just going to admit it right up front, I am late to discovering Cheever, so if you're already a big fan, please indulge me for the next few minutes. You're probably sitting there going, yeah mate, we all know about it. Well, 
there's a lot of stuff to consume in the world and sometimes you just get to things a little bit late. I never get upset if someone discovers Bowie right now. I'm wrapped that they're joining the party. Why are you judging me? The creator of Mad Men, Matthew Weiner, talked about the influence of Cheever on his work and in a New York Times article said of the author, the fiction of John Cheever has a voice filled with irony and comedy and pain. On some level, I'm always seeking to emulate. His short stories present themselves as TV do, with plenty of story and flawed characters presented without judgment. There was one particular story by Cheever from 1964 that continued to appear in relation to Mad Men in all these articles, in some podcasts that I listened to, and the short story was called The Swimmer. Seeing this title pop up, I record a little piece written by Michael Chabon. Michael Chabon is by far my favourite writer. And he described reading the story and finding himself lost in the weird, lovely dreamland of John Cheever's greatest story. I love Chabon's work, and with the madman stamp of approval, I subsequently visited a bookstore and bought the stories of John Cheever. And then, like any good reader, put it on the shelf and completely forgot about it. (laughs) I was probably distracted by a car siren or, I don't know, needed to make a snack. We all do that. You buy something, you want to read it, you can't wait to read it, put it on the bookcase, and then one day you find it and you go, oh, when did I get that? So anyway, on the weekend, I had just finished a book that I had... Look, I had a weird uh, experience with this book. I'm not going to name it. It began quite promisingly, uh, but it really failed to stick the landing and it uh, it just wasn't what I was looking for. And so I needed to read something else, something short that wouldn't require a complete commitment. And it was then that I, of course, found the Cheever short stories and remembered The Swimmer and, to be honest, soon found myself like Chabon, lost in the prose on the cool but sunny winter's day that just passed. So The Swimmer has a simple premise – On a brilliant summer's day, Nettie Merrill decides to swim from the house of his friends to his own home via the swimming pools of the people who live in the suburb of Shady Hill. So it's a funny, if not slightly bizarre premise, but slowly it becomes a surreal experience as the joy we witness at the start of the journey devolves into a feeling of despair. And by the time we arrive at the end of the story, we realise we have experienced something much more than we expected. To say too much is, of course, to ruin the story. And it's a short story, so you can't go into it too much because there's not that much to talk about without ruining it. But if you don't mind, I'd like to read this small passage to give you a taste of Cheever's writing if you haven't come across it before. Nettie Merrill sat by the green water, one hand in it, one around a glass of gin. He was a slender man. He seemed to have the especial slenderness of youth. And while he was far from young, he had slid down the banister that morning and given the bronze backside of Aphrodite on the hall table a smack. He might have been compared to a summer's day, particularly the last hours of one. He was not a practical joker, nor was he a fool, but he was determinedly original and had a vague and modest idea of himself as a legendary figure. He had an inexplicable contempt for men who did not hurl themselves into pools. I love this short story and have gone back to the beginning of the the collection of short stories to read the rest. So look, if you're a fan of Mad Men or stories that exist in a dreamlike world where protagonists are haunted by nightmares that 
barely can be seen but are always felt, then the works of John Cheever are waiting for you. At the very least, check out the story of Nettie Merrill in The Swimmer. And then why don't you head over to our Big Squid private page on Facebook. It's a place we can talk about anything we want to talk about without worrying about spoilers. So if you have read it or you do read it, come over, share your interpretation of the story with me. I'd love to hear your thoughts. It's time we have a chat with journalist Rachel Brown. I've been friends with Rachel for a long time now and have watched her career go from strength to strength. In 2008, Rachel won the Walkley Award for Best Radio Current Affairs Report and won another Walkley in 2017 for Innovation after she debuted her first season of Trace, the podcast she not only hosts but also created. The podcast also won Quill Awards in 2017 for Best Podcast and Innovation and Rachel has worked all around the world and has been a success in every facet. With her second season of Trace underway, I managed to badge her into giving me some of her time to talk about her approach to the new story, how she chose to follow up her hit first season and the talented team that help make the podcast a unique audio experience. I've been really excited by your career for a long time now, from when I'd be sitting at home watching TV and then out of nowhere, there you are for the BBC. And the amount of times I've just clapped (laughs) when you've just popped up on the screen has been uh, really exciting. And then your first season of Trace was such a massive hit. And I'm really curious, with all the stuff that you've done What drew you to the podcast format for the story about Maria James? Yeah, so to set the scene for listeners that might not have heard Trace Season 1, it was about a woman, a 38-year-old woman called Maria James. She was murdered in the back of her bookshop uh, in 1980, and that was the year that I was born. And she left two little boys, 13 and 11 years old, Mark and Adam. That story was quite intriguing to me because I started learning things like... um, you know, Adam, her son that had cerebral palsy and Tourette's, was molested by a local priest. And so one of the potential motives, of course, for the murder was, well, did one of these priests um, murder Maria to silence her? So I looked into that. I looked into other potential suspects, you know, other dodgy characters that were gravitating around that bookshop area at the time. Um, and I had a lot to do with the veteran detective Ron Idles, Um, and he was quite passionate about the fact that someone always, a killer always tells someone. So he was adamant there was someone in the community that would know who killed Maria James. So I went to both Ron Idles and Mark James to get their blessing. Um, you and I have spoken a lot about this before. I don't think true crime should be a voyeuristic um, thing. I I saw this as an important story to tell if they wanted to tell it. Um, so I asked right. for their blessing to turn it into a true crime podcast because I thought it might elicit some important leads. And, you know, luckily for me, um, they both said that they thought that it, w- it was a great idea. Well, you, you not only produced, uh, obviously, a great podcast, but you actually made some important changes in Victorian law. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, the the climax, I suppose, of all my discoveries was that it led to the Victorian coroner at the end of 2018 to announce a fresh inquest 
into the murder of Maria James, which is quite remarkable. We're talking 40 years on. And, I mean, you get in, a lot of journalists get into the field thinking that they can affect change or help people. And it's a nice thought, but, you know, it rarely happens, um, especially not as much as it used to because of the frantic pace of today's news. So for me as a journalist to be able to be the catalyst for a new coronial inquest was, you know, it was the highlight of my career so far. Um, and then another minor, ch- well, not, not minor, but another change was that it had some impact on changes um, to laws by the Victorian Attorney General uh, that, you know, how a coroner can deal with um, cases retrospectively and, and that a coroner does have the power to look at old cases because before when new evidence arose, it was the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. So there was a whole long, boring tedious legal argument that I won't bore you with, but basically it led to a very definitive um, decision that, yes, the coroner's court could be the one to look at old cases. And did you have any idea that you were going to land, you know, such an important uh, moment with the podcast or were were you halfway through? Because I'm really curious about when you're putting it all together. You must have an idea of where you think it might go and then there's... (laughs) going to be all these swerves and, you and you know, I could imagine in the middle of it, you're suddenly thinking, oh, hang on, this is turning into something else. And, uh, you know, did you have any idea of where you were going to land? Yeah, I laughed because um, you sound like my boss. So there was, oh. um, at the start, you know, there were, when there was um, kind of debate on whether or not we should even do this, um, right. do this podcast, there, one of my boss's worries well, was, well, you don't know how it's going to end. And that to him was a problem, whereas to me it was like, that's the beauty of it. I don't know how it's going to end. So I'm hand on heart um, legitimate and sincere when I say I need the community's help. Like this medium, which we'll get into a bit later, of podcasting is so innovative and potentially powerful that I did see this as a genuine interactive um, project with the community that they could... Um, email me or phone in and those leads would be rolled into future episodes. So for me, not knowing um, was kind of the beauty of it to me, whereas it it did worry some management. (laughs) Of course, it's management who are thinking, well, hang on a sec, if we don't know what our big crescendo is, how can we back this? Do you know or do you remember which episode of the original podcast when you actually knew what the ending was? Um, I still don't feel like I know. If that, I hope that doesn't sound too silly. Like I'm still working no. on it. Um, the coroner's court, hope, uh, the new inquest will hopefully be held next year. So that will do some more update episodes on that. Um, but I, I guess in terms of something massive to give listeners, it was a bit of a surprise. And that surprise came in episode four, where I revealed that there'd been a DNA bungle. So all the suspects right. that had been you know, kept in or ruled out. Um, That was all done on the basis of blood on a pillow. But I managed to find in the course of this investigation that the pillow that they were testing, the DNA sample, was from a completely different crime scene. So nothing to do with Maria James. So it was a human stuff up, um, accidental or deliberate, I'm not sure. So that, that to me was a big turning point in this case. I thought it would really upset Mark James because I thought, well, you know, you're relying on this DNA sample, so maybe without that you'll never have an answer. But to him, it, this kind of fog lifted um, because for 
the whole time he'd been saying, look, I don't know why, you know, Father Bongiorno, one of the priests who molested Adam James, has been ruled out. I just don't get it. So this to him was a revelation that he'd been ruled out because the, the DNA sample was dodgy. Yeah, and, and so I'm guessing there must have been times where you're trying to do your job and you're also trying to, because I know you're a very empathetic person as well, you're trying to juggle the different reactions from people. So that must have been a relief that that was his reaction to everything you were finding. Oh, such a relief. Um, I was actually quite upset when I went to his house, went to his house on a Sunday afternoon to tell him because it was going to be in the episode that week, so on the Tuesday um, and it shouldn't, that's not my job. Victoria police should have told him that. And I'd gone to Victoria police and said, look, can you confirm or deny this bungle by Tuesday at 5 PM? Um, but I wasn't, I'd emailed them plenty of questions for each episode before that. And they hadn't replied to any of them. So I wasn't really holding my breath. So I thought I'll go and tell him and he handled it quite brilliantly, actually better than I would have. Um, and he talked about that fog lifting that I just went through with you. Um, but interestingly enough, on at five o'clock on the Tuesday, when I'd given them Victoria Police a deadline to reply, they were instead on Mark James's doorstep saying, oh, sorry, there's been an error here. Um, so they did tell him on, yeah, on that Tuesday afternoon. And then poor Marty, my sound engineer, I had to call him and I said, we've got to recut the back end of episode four. So that was done overnight on the Tuesday, um, I think. Monday night and anyway it was released it was dropped in the afternoon instead of the morning because we had to recut the entire back end yeah fascinating uh it's uh I'm, I'm absolutely uh astounded at uh, the way you did it and and the way it all came together I'm also really curious do the Victoria police send you Christmas cards <laughs> like are they <laughs> are they happy that you helped out with this or no, are they... no. um I'm not a favourite. Uh, I never will be, I don't think, which is kind of disappointing. Um, it's not, you know, it's like they they managed to find the anomaly um, to their credit. You know, someone within Victoria Police found that, that, the, that the pillow um, was the wrong one. Um, so right. it's not, you know, I don't, I don't think it should be embarrassing to people now. Um, which is how, unfortunately, I think it's been regarded. It was an error that would have been made back in the 80s. Um, yeah, back in the 80s. So, well, it, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Where, like, you just need the the job to be done yeah, and I done think, correctly. I agree, I agree. And I think they I've – got, I've got mixed feelings on this. I think they think that I'm meddling. Um, I think that, I mean, so I asked if they could contribute to a trace too and how, and what that would look like, because better cooperation would mean better results in my mind. Um, Ron Niddles spoke at a panel with me at the Wheeler Centre and he was really interesting because he's like, well, you know, when I started, we were working on typewriters and we were using carbon paper and, um, rewards were issued on the six o'clock nightly news. Um, and we were hoping that, you know, announcing a reward on the news in a 10-second news bite would lead to cases being solved. And he said that that simply doesn't happen anymore because audiences are different. They get their news in different ways. So Victoria Police and all policing organisations need to change the way they put call-outs for information. So Ron, to his credit, he's part of the old guard, but he's really behind these new innovative ways to try to reach out to communities and get them 
mobilised and get them involved in trying to help solve crimes. So, you know, the way he sees it is that they should get involved in things like this, whereas I'm getting a lot of resistance because they either think that I'm meddling or maybe they think if they say yes to me, they have to say yes to everyone, like everyone who's doing a podcast from their garage, for example. Um, And I also think there's a cultural resistance um, that they think that they, it's their job, they're detectives, they're the ones with the information and the power and it's better left to them. Um, And I see that side of it and they're overworked and they're under-resourced and they do these cold cases around their other work, which I completely get and respect. Um, But I just see great scope there for them to work with podcasters because even something as simple as, you know, Rach, please don't put that call out about the woman who was driving the car down High Street at at, at midday. We looked for her, we found her, nothing came of it, don't waste your time. But what we really need is the woman with the red hair who was walking past the bookshop at one o'clock. Like, we need to find her. So something as simple as that could could benefit greatly. Yeah, right. Uh, by the way, I'm going to have to explain to everyone after we've talked uh, what a typewriter is and carbon <laughs> paper for the young people. But it, do, do you think also because with true crime podcasts and like there are the, the stuff that's really good, but then of course there's the stuff that is sensationalist. Do you think maybe there was a, a feeling of a bias with within the police force because they were maybe underestimating what you were actually doing initially? Yeah, perhaps. I've never thought about that that way. I've more given thought to the other reasons I gave you, but perhaps. Um, yeah, if, if only they knew, I mean talked at great length on the fact that true crime is not a spectator sport, um, should never be treated as such. I had the benefit of having listened to um, podcasts like Serial, for example, and I read that Hamin, so the victim's brother, Hamin Lee's brother, got on Reddit one day and said, you know, to you, this is all another episode of CSI, but this is my life. Um, yeah. And that really stuck with me because it is. It's it's not, you know, listeners are binging it as entertainment, but this is this is people's real lives. So, I had the foresight um, going into my podcast knowing that. Um, And I'm actually really grateful and humbled by how that was received by listeners. I wasn't really willing to budge on that. Um, I was adamant that you could have a podcast that's both forensic and compassionate. You know, I don't feel the need for gruesome details if you can avoid it. Um, But listeners actually really responded to that and resonated to that. So something that I thought, oh, you know, maybe they wish it was a bit more you know, what they're used to, a bit more blood and gore. So many listeners emailed in to thank me for taking that tack. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I think we, as not individually, but as a general rule of thumb, underestimate the intelligence of an audience. And if you give them stuff that is, you know, has a little bit more self-respect and is a little bit more intellectual, people will respond to it. But if you give them schlock, yeah. then they'll just kind of listen to schlock. Yeah. So you, you, if you, I think uh, the success of your first podcast has obviously borne that out. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. And what I'm curious, what did you learn from the first season? Because that was your first podcast. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. yeah so Talk I'd... about hitting big. <laughs> I know. So I'd never written a podcast before. Um so because of that, I, I learned a lot. I lo- God, I learned so much. I learned that sound does a lot of the heavy lifting. I underestimated just how much sound can do. So I overwrote 
um, my early drafts when and then when I heard it with music and realized there's a lot of stuff I didn't even have to say you can let the music do it Um, sometimes you can let silence do it and carry the weight of something you know without me having to say anything Um, so that I've tried to keep in the back of my mind going into the second season Um, the scripting is a lot uh, I over scripted um, too much description too many uh, too many dead ends. So I went down a lot of rabbit holes and a lot of dead ends. And I remember putting them, a lot of them in the initial episodes and my script editor, Tim going, Oh no, nah, we don't need this because it doesn't go anywhere. And I said, yeah, but I just want people to know how exhausted I was. You know, I'm exhausted. I want them to be exhausted. And he's like, no, <laughs> no, 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 we don't just include one. You get one. So the one, um, red herring, uh, dead end that I included was the real estate agent um, who was having an affair with Maria James before she was murdered. I chased this poor guy for six months, harassed him, you know, in the nicest possible way, of course, but said, you know, I know, <laughs> I know that you had an affair with her. Don't worry, I won't tell your wife. And he kept denying it and denying it because uh, it turned out it was the wrong real estate agent. Uh, oh, someone gave me yes. the wrong surname. So... Yeah, so I included that dead end, but I didn't let you into all the other rabbit holes that I went down for for no reason. Well, it's kind of important to show at least one, isn't it? Because you don't want it to seem like it was, not that it was easy, but that you just went, hang on, I'll just follow this, this and this, and bang, I've got a podcast. I just wanted to be really honest with listeners about how bloody hard it was and exhausting and, you know crushingly hopeless sometimes and then you know have these it was just a roller coaster you'd be hopeless one day and then elated the next um but I wanted to let them in on my mistakes as well because I didn't I'm I'm not a detective so this there's this pivotal moment in episode four where someone gives me something that I could potentially use as a DNA sample and I vaguely remembered Ron Idles to tell me to put it into a plastic bag so I checked, so I put it in a Ziploc bag and checked with him when I got home and he's like, no, 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 paper, paper bag, paper, plastic makes it sweat. So I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> tips for new players. <laughs> so I wanted to include that kind of stuff because, yeah, I'm not perfect. Yeah, and it's more interesting. It kind of gives the, the, the whole narrative uh, like a little bit of a different texture. Mm. But also, especially in these kinds of things, yeah, of course, guys uh, – denying that they're having an affair but this one time <laughs> he, he was right it <laughs> was nice. the wrong peter sorry peter if you're listening <laughs> uh and so i wanted to ask you about the the sound effects etc who's the i've forgotten uh, the gentleman's name martin that does peralta all that stuff. does the sound design uh, and and the music for trace yes he does a, a great job because one of the things that i wanted to ask you is like, I'd be awful at it. I feel like if I was adding sound effects, I would just get so excited and then you'd be sitting there going, is this like a true crime podcast or has this arsehole turned it into a, a 1930s radio play? So Martin Peralta is our sound designer and he's done such incredible things um, with both seasons. In the first season, you might have heard things as subtle as like wind. So he said to me that's the, the, he wanted to create the sound of time brushing things away which kind of blew my mind. Um, yeah, and he's in this, in this second season, which is about Nicola Gobbo, the defence barrister turned police informer, he's tried to use things like um, 
music AI, you know, artificial intelligence and self-generating software to inform the trace theme and things like that. And he's lent on covert police recordings and tried to embed some of them into the music or, you know, because this is all about whispers and rumours and how dangerous it is when they get passed on. He, you know, he's working on embedding voices in instrumentation to give your ears a bit of a tickle. So you might think that you can hear someone talking in the background, but you're not really sure. So all of all of those things really inform the soundscape. Um, he told me that, that, oh, and also using a lot of granular sounds, so looping small snippets of sound so it becomes a new sound. Um, and he, he told me that working on sound was actually quite challenging during lockdown. So he's working out of a bedroom with no kind of traditional instruments or sound toys. So, you know, this is all on software and on headphones and things like that, but it's still got a lot of hidden sounds and treats for those that, that listen closely enough. And the really interesting thing about this season is that, um, because he couldn't compose all the music himself this time, or he does a lot of it, um, but he also reached out to local artists, um, an online modular synth group to see if anyone was interested. And so they came, they've come up with some amazing music too. Um, and a lot of using a lot of modular synthesizers and software processing. So it's a real mix of traditional sounds and future sounds that also involves local artists, which I thought was a great idea by Marty to try to include that. I think he's doing a great job. Like uh, I was telling you before we started recording that I, I don't listen to your podcast on a walk or on public transport. I actually sit at home on the lounge. It's like I'm uh, having a, a little moment and then I sit here and listen to it properly and I've been really impressed with it, it, it kind of – it helps it kind of move really quickly, I think, the the every – uh, chapter that you've had so far. Uh, I'm also curious how, and I won't keep you for too long because I know you're in the middle of making this second season. <laughs> yeah. how, how did you come to the decision to uh, follow this story about Nicola Gobbo after the success of the first season of Trace? Yeah, that was, this is a tough one because, um, and without meaning to sound crass, the first one had done so well that I had massive second album fears and I thought, well, how do I beat the first one? You know, if I did another cold case, I'd probably have to solve it. Like, you know, that would be the bar that I'd kind of be setting myself um, subconsciously, I think. So that was playing in my mind. The fact that there's a lot of, um, since Trace One, there's been a lot of cold case podcasts out there. Um, You know, I didn't want to do it just for the sake of doing a cold case. Um, And when I did the first one, it wasn't to do a cold case podcast. It was a story that I was fascinated by the Maria James story, and I thought it would work best as a podcast. So, you know, I often get a bit um, uneasy when I get lumped into the true crime basket. It is, but that's not why I did it. Um, the medium came second for me with that. This, I mean, the story always has to come first, right? So um, the story came first with Maria James, and I decided that podcast would be of the best medium for it because I could have a lot of episodes to go into great detail about the story and investigate it. Um, it could evolve as it went to air. So we could bring in those innovative elements of call outs to, um, listeners. So listeners became participants, not just consumers, um, which I love that idea, um, like genuine participants. Um, so there was that with the second season of Trace, I, so I'd already kind of fallen in love with the podcast medium. I've loved the radio medium since I started as a baby, like as a cadet at the ABC, because I think it can do so much. 
So this time I thought I wanted to keep working in the space. She, Nicola Gobbo, I find particularly fascinating because in the public, in the media, it had been a very much a one-dimensional profile of her, I thought, I felt, as a journalist, as a woman, you know, as a, as a Victorian. So I thought, wouldn't she be fascinating to have a closer look at? Because what would make someone do that? What would make a high-flying defence barrister who was set for life as a lucrative QC, what would make her turn on her underworld clients and become a police informer? So basically give underworld secrets back to police. So why would she risk her career? Why would she potentially risk her life? So the the why um, of Nicola Gobbo fascinated me, you know. Yeah, I just, so the what, um, what she actually did, whether she breached her client's privilege, whether she's guilty of conflict of interest, that's all being dealt with by the Royal Commission um, into the police management um, of in, informants. So I'm not dealing with the what so much as the why. So it's kind of like a psychological deep dive into her and then all the other characters that were in her orbit. Uh, we're, we're two episodes in and I, I, as I've already told you, when I, I think I called you after the first episode yeah. and talked at you for half an hour <laughs> and I have no idea what to make of her. Like I've got no idea. There's moments when I'm completely on her side and I understand where she's coming from and then something will come up and you think, oh, I don't know if that's very good. And then something else will come up and you think, oh, I feel like they're picking on her a little bit. And then something else will happen. You go, oh, God, I think I've got whiplash. I've swung around so many times. And But she's she's a fascinating character so far. Yeah, good. I'm glad you feel like that. And apologies, but, but good. Um, because it's yeah. messy and life's messy. Yes. And so that one-dimensional caricature that I mentioned, you know, all I was hearing that was she was promiscuous, uh, she was treacherous, she did... Um, drugs with her clients she slept with clients she slept with cops it was this very just I thought one-dimensional portrait so I wanted to kind of look at her and I and I found that that there are often very complicated sometimes baffling reasons behind her decisions for things um you know why she would decide to represent certain people why she gave information on certain people you know some of the some of the things she did you initially might go what are you doing you crazy woman but then when she explains it, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, okay, I can kind of see why you did that. And a lot of the reasoning comes down to survival often. You know, she yep. stayed close um, to people so she could stamp out rumours as they popped up, you know, about her working too closely with police and things like that. So that I find really fascinating. But you, the very first episode, when you read to her a list of things that people have said about her, and at first it's like, oh, yeah, that's pretty full on. And then you keep going and it's like, oh, there's quite a bit here. And then it keeps going. And at the end, you're like, is there anything that's kind of been left out? And she's really funny. And she's like, oh, well, you know, no one's suggested that I killed Princess Di. Yeah. And immediately I was like, well, I don't know if I approve of anything, but I kind of like her. She is really funny. She's really funny. Um, and so in my contact with her, you know, she's cracked me up a lot. Um, there'll be times that she infuriates me because I don't feel like I'm getting the full answer on stuff. Um, but maybe that's because she's protecting herself. Maybe that's for other reasons. I don't know. Um, there are days that she can be quite, um, could, I should say, could be quite depressed and flat. 
um, and hopeless about it all and other days that she just, you know, was quite adamant that her voice got out there. So, right. yeah, and I mean, what I found interesting from her in the early days of deal of, of contact was that she said the reason why she became a police informer is she felt quite um, manipulated by her gangland clients. And I won't go too much into that. That that comes out in, um, it starts coming out in episode four and a little bit that you would have heard in episode two. But she felt manipulated and that they were trying to play the system. So then she said that was one of the large reasons for her to turn to police. But then she told me and my reporting partner, Josie Taylor, that she ended up feeling more manipulated by police than criminals ever could make her feel. You know, and even that, I'm like, wow, let's, I want to dig into that. She's really compelling and, and you're doing such a great job with it. I, I don't want to keep you for much longer because I know how busy you are, but I'm just curious... You're working 24-7 on this new podcast. You are in Victoria. You are in lockdown. Please tell me you've got some outlet to relax. Is there something you're watching or listening? Are you doing yoga with Adrienne? Like, what are you doing to, you know, have some downtime? Um, so I try to run as often as I can. I live, I'm really lucky. I live right beside um, the river. So I go for runs at nighttime, which is lovely just to clear my head or to kind of chew over certain things that's, that's you know, puzzling me or annoying me. Um, so running and, yeah, lately I've been binging on Shit's Creek on Netflix. <laughs> and it is just, I even, I sent them a tweet yesterday saying thanks for helping me get through a grim Melbourne lockdown because I just, it's weird. I feel like they're part of my lockdown family because I can't see my own crazy family. Um, And I mean, last night I was, what am I up to? The episode where David sings to Patrick, simply the best. And he was just one of the most joyful things that I've seen in a long time. And I know it's, I know it's, you know, fiction, but yeah, I I need a bit of fiction at the moment because the stuff that I'm dealing with is pretty heavy. Oh, I really love the idea that the producers see your tweet and they decide, <laughs> oh, I wonder, I wonder how she is going. And then they look you up and go, holy <laughs> shit, she is really dealing with some stuff. Yeah, so. well, thanks to them. A lot of my laughs are coming from them at the moment. So if they ever listen to your podcast, Justin, <laughs> um, yeah, thanks very much to them. Yeah, oh, well, thank goodness you have something to, you know... Just relax with. Um, but I have to say, as a, as a, a long-time friend of yours, I'm, I'm really proud of you and uh, it's so exciting to see all of your success. Uh, people can hear the whole first season, uh, which is obviously done. There's also a book which uh, people can buy as well. And, uh, and do you know how many episodes this season will go? Yeah, it'll probably be eight episodes. Eight. Yeah. So we're two in. Two in and buckle up is all I'm going to say. And then I guess you finish it and you get to have a holiday. In Geelong, if I'm lucky. Um, Yeah, I'd planned, I had a holiday planned overseas, um, but that's off the cards, obviously. So I'm not even sure whether interstate would be a goer at the moment. So yeah, hopefully they let us leper Victorians travel, um, even intrastate (laughs) soon, go down to the beach for a bit just to get away and clear my head. Just get some vitamin D, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, congratulations on uh, the first season. I'm really loving uh, this uh, second season so far. And uh, we'll have to have a chat again at some point. And by the way, when it's not a podcast, you are going to be getting a phone call from me each week where <laughs> I talk at you about everything that I love about it. So That's fine. I love dissecting it. That's fine. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. 
2002, off the back of his breakout hit movie Memento, Christopher Nolan returned to the big screen with his remake of the 1997 Norwegian film of the same name. Starring Al Pacino, Robin Williams and Hilary Swank, Insomnia tells the story of homicide detective Will Dormer, as played by Pacino, who was sent to Nightmute, Alaska to solve an horrific murder. The sun never sets in this town and Dormer begins to suffer from insomnia. Is Dormer suffering because of the unbearable midnight sun? Or does he fail to sleep because of the terrible secret he has locked deep inside? And when he falls into a cat and mouse game with a murder suspect, will Dormer be able to bring this person to justice before his life completely unravels? They brought him in to solve an unspeakable crime. Detective Dormer, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm Detective Ellie Burr. Welcome to Night Mute. So incredible to be working with you. The Leland Street murders was my case study at the Academy. Someone out there just beat a 17-year-old girl to death. Your job is to find him. Doesn't say in the report that he clipped her nails. He washed her hair. No mutilation? Not this time. He tortures him, makes him do things, and keeps him there for three days. This guy, he crossed the line, and he didn't even blink. Police! What Detective Dormer doesn't know is that murder is only part of the plan. Don't worry, Will. You can sleep when you're dead. So I'm curious to know when you first saw this movie. Did you see it at the cinema or no? No, no that's really interesting. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but it must have been after the classics. Right. Because I remember maybe I remember it being unremarkable because I don't remember the first time I saw it. Right. And then the only time I really remember seeing it was about six months ago and it like fucking blowing my mind. Right. And being so grateful that I didn't remember it because I didn't remember any twist or turn or anything. So yeah. everything was a great surprise. Yeah. Um, you know, and it is. It's like the Lost Classic. How can it be so forgotten? It's so great. Yeah. It's so... I saw it at the cinema mm. because... Well, if, funnily enough, the reasons I saw it at the cinema was because it was Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, oh... Robin Williams in a different kind of role from the sounds of it. Oh, and it's by that guy that made Memento. Yeah. So, funnily enough, I rewatch it for different orders now. Yeah. You know. Um, Was this Robin Williams' first uh, villainous role? So, I can't remember if it's... So, One Hour Photo Photo. uh, came out around the same time and I can't quite get a read on... I feel like this was the first one. I think it was. And... uh, so I saw it at the cinema and was pretty blown away by it because mm. I thought it was a really interesting story and and we'll get into this a little bit later. I liked... Well, actually, let's just get into this now. Yep. I think it's a smart follow-up to Memento yep. because I think if he had done a twisty-turvy follow-up film, mm-hmm. then he's going to set guy. up... Or M. Night Shyamalan expectations. Totally. Totally. And there's still the stuff in there. There's still a bit of stuff with time. You know, there's a lot of flashback stuff. And, you know, 
Uh, I remember the first time watching it, you know, like the, the the thing they keep going back to of him rubbing his sleeve. I remember not being sure if that was Robin Williams or Al Pacino because you never quite see the face for the first half of the well, movie. I, I think at first you think it's Robin Williams. Yeah, you think absolutely. it's the murderer. Yeah. Like, and all the you, you keep getting the recurring shots of the blood mm-hmm. in the thread. Yep. yep. And so I think you automatically... And I, th- I think there's, there's a real subtlety to this film. Yeah, man. And so you just think, oh, well, that's the killer. Uh-huh. And then... When he finally admits yeah. to uh, the the hotel manager, which I'm fascinated by, this there's, there's parts of this movie where I sort of think, could this movie have weirdly gone for another hour? Be- yeah, because there's there's a anyway we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. But the um, but then you realise oh that's him yeah. and yeah 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 you know you it does make you like at, at the in the first half of the film. I don't like. I do think it's an accident that he shoots his partner, but in the do second you? half, I, I'm a, like because you then realise what he is capable of. Mm-hmm. Like because you're watching him and you're thinking, "Geez, so someone panicking? He's really thinking this through." Yeah, I think that I really noticed it on this rewatch when he, because I the fir- the first time I saw it, it's like, oh, the guy dies and. Pacino virtually immediately starts screaming, man down, man down. Yeah. This time, not at all. You yeah. can see he is surveying his surroundings yeah. and he's building a story. It's very quick. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's an expert in his field, so he can build a story very quickly. Yeah. But he clearly surveys his environment before he yells, man down. So right. whether or not he intentionally killed the guy or not, there is an intentional plan being put in place oh, after the fact. Incredibly quickly. Very quickly. And he picks up the gun, yes, all of it. You know? Yes. And so what I find fascinating is by the time he kind of confesses mm. and he says, I don't know, mm-hmm. like I actually believe he doesn't know. Yeah. 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 He has no idea. Yeah. He's, he has slipped so far down from the obviously good cop that he must have been at some point. Mm-hmm. To, you know, you take a little bit off the edge here, you take a little bit Completely. off the edge there, and now yep. he doesn't even know who he is. Yeah, and I think and I think that's really the, 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 the point of the movie. It's it's about moral compromise. Yeah. You know, you do it once, and then it's that much easier to do it the next time and the next time, and suddenly, what is your moral compass? Yeah. What is your line? Yeah, you have compromised way too much. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's you know, there's it's funny, there's this period where... Pacino disappears for a while and goes and does theatre. Mm. And then when he comes back, it's uh, Sea of Love. And what, what, what era are we talking about? Uh, that's uh, the 80s, right. late 80s. Okay. And so, and he comes back and Sea of Love is... Have you ever seen Sea of Love? When I was a kid. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it used it's, to be a, um, uh, uh, t- a TV movie that was off and on a couple of times a year. Oh, was it? Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, John Goodman, Ellen yeah. Barkin. Ellen Barkin's so good. Yeah. Michael Rooker, yeah. you know. Um, but it was interesting. That's when you first saw Pacino and he went from the, the beauty of Pacino in the seventies to, and it's, it's a little bit, Robert Downey Jr. had a similar thing where these beautiful men who then Mm. suddenly get these lines in their faces and there's a bit of age to them and and suddenly there's a new sort of character. Mm. And I feel like from sea of love to performance wise to insomnia, Mm. That's a that's a very uh, specific era of Pacino bookended for me. Yeah, you know, right. it's yeah. it's like 
that was the guy who came back and this is the end of that guy. Haunted Pacino. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think he's I think he's fantastic in this. Yeah, I think he's uh at I watched it with my buddy last night and we were often laughing. Yeah. But it's that thing where, you know, he's peak Pacino. So I don't know that we were laughing at him. We were laughing with him. Like right. I just I just quoted the line to you where he's like, and your friend was found in a pile of garbage. Uh, and yeah. it's so arch Pacino <laughs> that we both burst out laughing, but you're so invested in the performance and right. you believe that this guy is this guy. Yeah. Really. But, and that's what, also I reckon that's the only time that he raises his voice. Yeah. In the in the movie. Yeah. You know, in the in the performances where Obviously, a director hasn't had a tight rein on him. Mm. That is, yeah. you know, <laughs> what, what's, the, what's the, the one with Keanu Reeves, The Devil's Advocate? Oh, my God. And it's like, what is happening in this yeah. film? And I love you, but yeah. what is happening? Yeah. Um, and uh, I think he's a little bit underrated. I, I think there are actually quite a number of uh, subtle performances from Pacino mm. over the years. Mm. Uh, but the ones that stand out, stand out for that of reason. Course. So I know that that scene in particular <laughs> is like when he loses it, you go, oh, and then, oh, yeah, that's it. But also he is performing for that young lady. Yeah. He is bang- banging it on for her. Yeah. So, so it's in it, context. It is in context. Yeah. 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 And uh, by the way, have you ever seen the original 1997 version? No. By Eric Sholdag? No, have you? No, I haven't. Uh, and I thought you might be interested to know the differences in the uh, movie. Um, this was uh, this was actually going to be some squid bit stuff, but let's get to it now. Uh, Eric said that uh, the remake, it was uh, when he first saw it, it was a really strange experience because it was quite close stylistically to the original. Mm. And he said, I felt lucky that it's such a well-crafted, smart film and that it had a really good director handling it because as a remake, I think it did really well and it doesn't hurt any original if a remake is well done. So That's I great. so I thought I was lucky that Christopher Nolan took it upon himself to do it. Yeah. The original movie, like I was curious anyway, and then I looked it up and it's it stars Stellan Skarsgard. Ah, great. And he's so good. Yeah. So he plays the Pacino character. He's the Pacino great. character. So the differences in the movie, like it reads pretty similar. Yeah. But his uh, Skarsgård's character was with the Swedish police but moved to Norway after being caught having sex with a main witness in one of his cases. Uh-huh. His partner is nearing retirement age and his memory is failing. So that's why when he's meant to go left, he goes right and he accidentally gets right, shot. Right. Uh, so Skarsgård's character initially tells the truth but everyone assumes that the fugitive was shot, you know, right. by the bad guy. Right. And then he ends up kind of getting stuck you know, yep. pushing that story. Yep. And then uh, Hilary Swank's, ver- the version of her character, at the end, uh, puts the cartridge case down to let her know, to let him know that she knows who it is. Uh-huh. And he's like, well, I'm about to be arrested. And she just walks off and it finishes with him driving away, living with his guilt. And it is quite apparent that he is not going to get rid of this insomnia anytime soon. Right. So and he gets away with it in the end. Yeah, uh-huh. but... Someone knows, and yeah. he's so. So I'm curious. Does does Pacino's character, knowing that ending, yeah. Does Pacino's character dying get off too easily? <sighs> hmm. I, I don't know if I necessarily have an answer for that. No, neither do I, because I don't think. I mean, now you're getting into all this kind of moral quagmire stuff, because it's like, I mean, did. Well, first of all, did he did he mean to? Did he, in that moment. 
see an opportunity to shoot his partner and I don't, get him out. I don't, I don't actually think so. No, no. I don't think he murdered his um, partner in cold blood. No. Based, if nothing else, on his reaction when he ran over yeah. to his partner. Had, oh, you know, yeah. if he'd blown his partner away on purpose, he wouldn't be running over there going, oh my, taking his tie off. Like, he's yeah. clearly freaking out when he does it. So you, I think, though, that there is weight in the fact that his partner was so afraid of him and right. that his partner thought that he did it. Yeah, he did it on purpose. If if he shoots the partner and he goes over mm. and the partner doesn't act scared, yeah, does he then try to cover up? Maybe not. You know, no. I think I think the fact that the partner is so freaked out is what plants the seed of doubt in Pacino's mind. Yeah, and that seed of doubt, or not even the seed of doubt, the seed the seed is already there. Yeah, uh, from what he did with this, uh, the child murderer of, of planting the blood in the child murderer's home and getting him convicted. Yeah. So the seed of you know, I am I corrupt? Am I bad? Is already there. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah. The fact that his partner is afraid of him yeah. and then dies in his arms, yeah, you know, because uh, it because uh, does he try to does he try to save the guy or does he just kind of let him bleed out? No, no, no. He's trying to cover him up and he's call. You know, he's yeah. he's in a bit of shock. Yeah, yeah it takes yeah. him a while to call. Like he yeah. starts yelling out, "Man down!" Yeah, and I think that's after he knows. Yeah. Oh fuck! Like yeah. the guy's dead. This is going to look really bad. Yeah, I better you know better come up with some kind of story. Sort this out. It's yeah. funny. It's like, does this whole story not happen if it's set now and he's got an iPhone and he's just watching a movie he wants on the plane rather than reading the newspaper and seeing the report that they're being, you know, investigated because then they don't have that conversation and then he doesn't have, he doesn't get really angry with his partner. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. But something I, something I will point out. If he out. was watching Friends reruns, maybe this whole movie doesn't happen. <laughs> He probably would have been watching a live CNN feed at any point. You know, uh, he yeah. seems like a very self-involved guy. Oh, yeah. But something I noticed, mm. and correct me if I'm wrong, mm. but I don't think that Pacino ever actually says what happened either way. To... To anyone. I, I was looking for it. And there's never a moment... Like, he, he always says he died. Yes. He got shot. Yes. But he never once says he was shot by, I can't remember, you know, Ron Williams' character's name. Oh, yeah. Or anything. It, it's always left open-ended and ambiguous. Yeah. And, you know, even even when he's questioned um, right after it, he's in the police station and the chief is there doing the whole, uh, so, you know, you were, you were through the shadows and then you yeah. heard the shot. That's what happened, right? That is what happened. And Pacino's like, Rawr! and like, kicks yeah. the desk over. Oh, yeah. He never says yes or no. No. And I'm fairly certain throughout the entire 
piece, he never once confirms or denies anything. He, he, in fact, he won't even sign off on the report yes. that Hillary Swank brings. Yes. He says, no, you know, and I know that's to distract her, that he doesn't want her hanging around. Yeah. But that's keeping in with not confirming the story that some rando shot his partner. Yeah, absolutely. And he also, he does kind of imply where he heard the gunshot from and it works out that the angle is not quite mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. So it's funny, he's kind of, he goes to a lot of trouble of, Covering up with that gun and all of that oh stuff. God. Oh, going off to shoot. Like, you know, shoot a dead stray dog. Mate, like the, the first time you see the stray dog <laughs> scene, you, you and every time I watch this movie, I completely forget that scene. And every time I see that dead stray dog, I always think, why do you have that in the movie? <laughs> and then he goes back, you know, 15 minutes later and puts the bullet into in it. And you go, daylight. Right. Okay. Well, that's why that's there. But yeah. um, it's always such a. It's such a small thing, but it's just such a bummer to see a dead straight dog. Yeah, and it's clearly, you know, its eyes are bugging out of its oh, head. God, so it's it wasn't a nice death. Awful death. <laughs> like an awful death. Um, there was a real uncut gems type vibe this time when I was watching it, where it's like, oh, don't do that. So don't, 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 don't get further into this. So I found myself at times just having to look away because it was stressing me so yeah. much. And yeah. I know it. I, yeah. Oh, maybe that's why it stresses you because you go, ah. Oh, what are you doing? What yeah. are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah, I think the, I think when I watched it a few months ago, not knowing each plot beat, you know, it's very much caught up in the oh, oh the yeah. roller coaster of oh no, like yeah. when Robin Williams pulls out the tape recorder and all this stuff. Yeah, I think this time knowing where it all goes, it was that you know how there's that part of your brain, uh, maybe it's a you know uh, something from childhood where you kind of believe that if you just hope hard enough, maybe they won't. Maybe the movie will be different this time. Maybe uh, they won't do that thing. So, can I tell you a TV show <laughs> idea that I had that I just figure is probably too expensive or people wouldn't be into, but my <laughs> it, and it was inspired by What If Comics. Mm. So, uh, for anyone who is not a comic book reader, What If Comics takes pivotal moments in comic book series mm. and says, "What if this happened yeah. instead?" Yeah. What if Spider-Man joined the Fantastic Four? Mm. You have to change their costumes out of five. You know, stuff like that, right? <laughs> um, and so I, so the movie that I always used to re-watch as a kid, that I'd always get towards the end and have that very same feeling, yeah. was I always wanted Steve McQueen to get the second jump in The Great Escape ah, right. and get away from the Nazis. Yeah, yeah. And so I'll, the idea I had for this, an ongoing TV show, would be it would be like taking a pivotal moment from a movie and you do the hour after if, say, Steve McQueen got over. Yeah. What, what happens to Steve McQueen after yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, what happens if Rose lets Jack on the piece of wood? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Do they get to land and then suddenly you, the, the rich girl's taken off and he's pushed away and you've got, then you've got some kind of Romeo and Juliet yeah, you know, beautiful. love affair. So yeah, there's yeah, all yeah. these great movies that you could just go, well, let's just take this bit yeah. and swap that and see how that goes. And release the, the you know different cuts into cinemas so no one actually knows what the ending is. Oh. So you can sit there and hope against hope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's um, it's a, a roulette movie. Yeah. <laughs> you never know which ending you're going to get. <laughs> uh, so, yes, yeah, so I, I do feel like this movie does have that very much uh happening where you're just going oh my god maybe maybe you'll just make a better decision and also you feel mm. like he's making bad decisions not only because of the stress of everything he's under he's just not getting any sleep well yeah he's out of his mind yeah uh and then you know i because I, I kind of um 
you know, he leaves his bullet casing behind, his 9mm bullet mm. casing behind at the scene, which seems like a major oversight for someone who's, um, you know, so good at his job and yeah. so aware of evidence and all the rest. But I think in the context of how sleep-deprived and insane and under stress he is, it's actually probably, you know a lot more believable than it would be in a different context. Oh, yeah. Like, once again, Pacino's performance, you know, if you consider how long he's been there, yeah. the way he comes in to where he ends up, like, even when he's, you know, when the case is all solved and he's leaving and he's sitting there and everyone's kind of <laughs> laughing because they're yeah. like, man, you need to get some sleep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, it, is, is the best scene the moment when he's just chewing on chewing gum and letting it roll around his face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. And holding his head in the moment he just nods off, the phone rings. Oh. And yeah, it's um, that hotel really needs to get some light-blocking curtains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, that scene when uh, the, the manager says that the lights are off and then turns it on and there's even that, you hear the tink and yeah. you hear the <laughs> hum yeah. and he's just like, yeah. you have ruined any chance of me ever being normal again <laughs> um so getting into the hotel manager so yeah. i was um did did dorma sleep with the hotel manager because she ends up after mm. after his partner gets killed and he kind of has a little bit of a chat to her. and this is where yeah. i wonder you know if there's two things in the movie that i wonder could have used an extra half hour could we have used another 10 minutes of him getting to know the manager yeah. before she ends up there yeah. And because he confesses, like he's so tired and he's so out of it, he confesses his crime in yeah. what he did setting up that, uh, mm. you know, child murderer. Mm. And then the next scene is her asleep in the room. Mm. So did she did she just fall asleep? Like she's kind of dressed as well. Yeah, she's fully dressed. I I never read that as a sexual right. thing. I don't think I don't think anything romantic happened. I think that they I shared... I think he's incapable. Yeah, of course. He's, yeah. he's yeah, there's no way he's suddenly turning into some Lothario. Yeah. He's sketched out and he's seeing shadows and demons everywhere. Yeah. Um I think I, I always just read that as a very human, you know, he's shared. Yeah. She intimates that she maybe have done has done something that she's ashamed of in the past. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I love that we don't find out what that is. Yeah. Uh, I think there's actually a lot of grace and weight in just kind of her acceptance of what he's done yeah. in contrast to what she's done going, look, who am I to judge? Well, she sort of says that there are the, you know, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, you know, there's the people who were born there and there are the people getting away from things. Yeah, the people escaping. Something. And yeah. you can even see that in, like, the police force. Like, Hilary Swank is the person who grew up there. Of course. And then there, but her boss, mm -hmm. you know, like, as you said earlier, that's how it happened, isn't it? Like, yeah. you know, he's happy to yeah. do whatever he has to do to just make it all nice and smooth. 100%. Well, yeah. you see that at the beginning when the, um, when the internal um, investigators send him that memo. Yeah. And oh, he very yeah. pointedly scrunches it up and throws it in the bin. Yeah. You know, he's like, I don't care. You know, I understand that being a cop is complicated and as yeah. long as you're doing the right thing in the main... We can overlook these other things. Yeah. Whereas Hilary Swank has that kind of gee whiz. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a good performance by Swank. I great reckon. performance. So, yeah. so that's my other question. With um, is she slightly underused in this role, or could we've done an like I would have been into her investigation. Oh, even just another 10, 15 minutes of, for some reason, seeing a bit of her house, or just a little bit more interaction, because I think. Mm. I think she's really good. Yeah. I think the character is good. Yeah. Um, and I, I could have done with a little bit more of it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Do you think, 
I know that he gets her back on the investigation or, or, or you know, to, when he says to her, you know, you need to look further into the report. Yeah. I read that as him basically going, I don't want her following me around while I'm doing all this nefarious right. stuff. So I need to get her out of off the map yep. and distract her from what I'm doing. But do you think subconsciously there's a part of him that recognises that she is a great cop and that if she is set, you know, further oh. on to this investigation, that maybe she will uncover it. Yeah. And maybe he will be brought to justice. I, I wonder if there is a... Uh, I wonder if there is a double level to it, you know, mm. getting her out of, you know, his way. But I think he is... Like, he does feel guilt yeah, over it. And because he's incapable of actually knowing what his decision was in that moment, yeah. you know, it's almost... Uh, she's suddenly... Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> totally, totally. But also the guilt over what he uh, did. And, you know, you can get into a huge moral debate about whether he was right or wrong to plant the blood in a yeah. person who's murdered a child's house yeah. or that he believes has murdered a child's house. Um, but that I think that's the original sin that haunts him more than anything. Because yeah. I caught that, you know, in all the scenes where he's, <clears throat> you know, can't sleep and the light's coming through. I caught that stupid cinema sins part of my brain you know, going, as if a hotel in a place that had 24-hour daylight wouldn't have light-blocking right. curtains. And it's like, right. it's a fucking metaphor, bro. Shut up. Yeah. Like, he's clear, you know, the, the insomnia is his guilt. And yeah. it's the thing that's keeping him awake at night. And, you know, he can't he can't rest. Oh, and I yeah. think the original, you know, the fact that it always flashes back to him obsessively yes. rubbing the cuff of his shirt, rubbing yep. the blood... You know, I mean, it's you know, blood on your hands, all of that. Oh, like you know, it's, it's, we 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 keep getting the sh- the the close up of the blood staining the threads. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, and and you know, like th- that room probably is quite dark. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like when she turns on the light. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that the guilt that he feels over his partner would not be guilt had he not committed that first right. indiscretion. Right. I think that he would have chalked it up to an accident, a terrible accident. Yeah. But if there was no tension between them, there was no investigation, he hadn't done that thing, he wasn't yeah. already on edge that his whole fucking career was going to be undone. Yeah. Not to say that he wouldn't feel guilty about shooting his partner, but I think that he would have been able to chalk it up as an accident. Yeah. I think the fact that he has already, uh, you know, gone back on his moral code that's what introduces this doubt of like, yeah. fuck, maybe I did kill the guy. I don't yeah. know. Like, I love that moment where he yeah. looks at her with those eyes and he's like, I don't know. Maybe I, don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting considering the times that we live now and with the way people are thinking about the police force, specifically in the States mm. and uh, approaching with their attitude to it. And when you look back at the way... TV and movies were used to perpetrate the myth of the cop always being fantastic, yep. like, you know, with TV shows like Dragnet and things sure. like that. And it's funny watching this, and there's that moment where they're really fucking angry at internal affairs. And they've always been seen as the bad guys. You know, and that's it's funnily enough, you see a little parallel in and even though they're such different movies between this and Harvey Dent, you yeah. know, like he's supposedly the bad guy, mm. but it's like, but you guys like your cops and you're breaking the law, yeah, you know, and and uh, it's it's just funny to kind of, I don't think this is actually 
taking like I don't think this movie is perpetuating the myth of that the cop is always right and no. internal affairs is wrong. No. But it's funny, it's it's like it's good casting, like yeah. Joey Pantolano in the last one, yeah. where you immediately go, God, he's like I don't know whether I should trust him with this. It's like, well, of course I'm on Pacino's side. It's Al fucking Pacino. <laughs> of course I'm on his side, but then you, you, the more you think about it, you go, maybe I shouldn't be. Oh, and, no, halfway through good. the movie where he's sketched out, walking down the daylit streets, looking over his shoulder and everything, it's oh, like, yeah. dude, you're, you're, you've gone, you've crossed the Rubicon. You are, yeah. You're gone. Like, yeah. any kind of um, uh, morality that you think you had is cashed was cashed yeah. in a long time ago. I mean, you're shooting dead dogs and digging bullets out of their corpses and replacing them at the fucking morgue. What are you doing? And you even just had a thought that you could do that. Yeah. Like and, and, and there's no, there seems to be no hesitation. No. He just keeps going on with this. Well, I better go and do this. Um, mm. uh, but yeah, it's such a, such a subtle uh, revelation when you realise it's him cleaning the blood off the shirt. And yeah. it's like such a... It's so good. Yeah, it's not a dun-dun-dun moment. Yeah. It's very good. Yeah. yeah. Once again, a smart movie for Nolan to do after mm. Memento. Yep. Uh, and let, let us just say, in terms of filmmaking, has there been a greater levelling up in, you know, and this is not to diminish Memento, no. but my God, like in terms of cinematography and just ambition, yeah. the leveling up from Memento to Insomnia is unbelievable. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's funny. Uh, one of the little squid bits I have um, is that Steven Sp- Soderbergh champion Memento, mm. as you know, and of course this is produced by Section 8, which is yep. Soderbergh and Clooney. Yeah. And uh, Warner Brothers executives were reluctant at first to meet with Nolan as they weren't so eager to put a $45 million thriller in the hands of a first-time studio director. (laughs) And Soderbergh was such a Memento fan that he forced Warner Brothers to take a meeting with Nolan. And I reckon Warner Brothers should send so many thank you cards to Steven Soderbergh because... He should get Nolan something up the made top them, end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he should be getting some points because yeah, yeah, he yeah. has made them a lot 100%. of money. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of money. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Is it uh, as a as a step up, you know, in budget and movie? Yeah. I wonder who. That's a good question. I was racking my brain, that. and I and I and I really. I mean, look, I'm you know, and I'm I'm not across people's um i mean maybe dogs in pulp fiction i will you know what i was gonna go to that yeah that's a that's a pretty pie and requiem for a dream maybe yeah i don't know but this but this is this is like cinematic that i think that's what i mean yes like memento is you know scrappy down and dirty kind of guerrilla filmmaking That's not to belie its no, no, beautiful no, internal no. logic and yeah. everything, but this is like vistas and yes. you know the cameras ro- when the cameras roaming through the fog. There's a, th- that log sequence oh, is terrifying. Yeah. It's yeah. nauseating. Yeah, uh, I think just the ambition that's on display. And I, I actually, I was talking about this with a friend earlier. I actually think you could say that of all of his films, like the yeah. the, the step up from. This to Batman Begins, yeah. and then to The Prestige, and then on and on and on. Yeah, like all of his films seem to level up in huge ways. Yeah, just in terms of ambition and scope. Yeah, and that's uh, I think we've talked about this on one of the previous podcasts. There are kind of movies that you bunch together, even though they don't quite yeah. match up. But this does feel like an important, like this is the first stepping stone that gets us. You, you put Insomnia 
Batman Begins and The Prestige together. Yep. And then suddenly it's like Dark Knight Inception. Yeah. And then you get Interstellar Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they have yeah. such fascinating feels to them. Completely. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, Hilary Swank is fantastic. Um, but you, so Robin Williams. Let's get to Robin Williams. So great. You know what I really, you know, because you always <laughs> remember that he's playing the bad guy, so you kind of fill in gaps with your memory. Yeah. And it's fascinating to rewatch it. He, it's a, such a great choice. He plays him with a, a patheticness yeah. and an insouciance, like, yeah. and he's still kind of smart, but he's yeah. also, you know, there, there's something really fascinating in the way. Pacino looks haggard and he's really smooth. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? I think the patheticness is really there. The fact that he, well, what he claims, you can never know because he's telling the story and he's, you know, I would say a murderer is probably the most unreliable narrator. Right. But the fact that he says that his motivation for killing this young lady was the humiliation that he felt at her laughing at him. Yeah. Uh, And that indicates a person who has no internal confidence in themselves. Yeah. And probably has been laughed at. Yeah. You know, and felt triggered or whatever. Terrible reaction. Yeah. Unforgivable reaction. But uh, the very fact that he would confess that as his motivation for committing the crime says to me that the character is kind of aware of his, you know, apathetic ears. Yeah. But he's still still conniving. Oh, yeah. You know, how good is the scene when he comes in to be questioned and and Pacino said, don't bring that up. up." And then he's just bringing it up. And then, you know, it fucking does your head in when he's like, oh, yeah. And then, you know, you could put the gun in the in the heater area and then Pacino's racing over there and, <laughs> and you're like, what is... Like, get some sleep, Hal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are... Stop stop reacting to this arsehole. That was a terrifying... Ter- so that, that was such a terrifying... It's such a terrifying concept of planting evidence in some guy's oh house. God. and like, oh, my Lord... You know, yeah. the, that was a huge fear of mine as a child. I was when I was a kid. I was terrified of murderers, right? <laughs> and I was terrified of being framed. I must have seen a movie when I was right, young. Right. I had a real pathological fear of the. In, imagine the injustice of getting handed a life sentence for a murder that you didn't commit. Maybe oh, I, it was the fugitive yeah. or something that I saw. Yeah. But it really stuck in my head. Like it was always a, a, a you know, oh God, can you imagine? Just yeah, how how do you then sit with that for the rest of your life? Um, so that really resonated last night on the rewatch. The, oh the idea yeah, of planning a gun on some seventeen-year-old and oh well, life in jail. Bye. Oh my god. And not, not not to say that the boyfriend's not a fucking asshole. And no, but he's not a murderer. Not a murderer. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a massive difference. Um, if you <laughs> you can't go to jail for being an asshole, like we'd, we'd all would have done some time at some point. Uh, also, um, kind of a very different kinds of uh, experiences, but there's a kind of Twin Peaks feel, you know. He's, really, you yes. know, uh, obviously with the look, but even with some of the characters, they mm-hmm. feel like it could be a, an yeah. updated Twin Peaks in some way. Well, there's a, there, there's that kind of grim humor in the Robin Williams character. Yeah, you know, yeah. like he's he's enjoying this. Yeah. Uh, and that felt very peaksy. Yeah. The kind of, you know, the subtle undercurrent of humour and that and, and that kind of deadened, yeah. flat way of speaking. Well, there's also... The, I think there's a really funny mm. line and a really funny delivery in after, you know, Pacino's in 
shock over his partner being murdered and trying to sort things out. And he goes back to the hotel. Mm. And then uh, uh, the actress Tierney says to him, uh, oh, I'm really sorry about your partner. And as he's walking off, he, he's like, he liked you. Yeah. He met her once. Like yeah, yeah, she, yeah. he never said. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like it's he's like kind he of flirty with her when he meets her. Yeah, do you notice that? Yeah, but it's yeah. it's such a funny. Yeah. It's like anyway. It's just his his delivery of it is you can see the humor in it. Yeah, but I think a lot of actors could have missed that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. The grim melancholy humor of the situation. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Um, but uh, you know. Like, also the way when when Robin Williams, like, calls the house, hey, use a towel, yes. throw yourself up, <laughs> like it's... Where else would you have gone in that state? Yeah. <laughs> he's uh, he's really good, and I th- I think it's um, it's almost like you probably couldn't have done it, but you know how Seven really works by not having Kevin Spacey in any mm-hmm. of the advertising. Mm-hmm. And I feel in a way it would be good to not have Robin Williams in any of the advertising. So when he turns... It, so so it's not known as mm. Robin Williams being the murderer. It's like, oh, yeah, Robin Williams is in this. Yeah. And because I think when you think of him as the bad guy, you, you project a different kind of performance and it's it's actually really good. It's a really subtle performance yeah, it's and it's, and he's pathetic, but he's wily and he's annoying. And yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. You know, there's just a but l- he's also kind of a fuck up as well for a smart. Mm. That, I think that's the interesting, uh, the interesting similarity between Pacino and uh, uh, Williams's character. They're they're both supremely intelligent, yeah, and they're on top of everything, yeah. But they've also got major fucking blind spots, right? For Williams to have not cottoned on that that. Uh, Going back to the cabin might have been a sting operation, right? You know when they where they say that they've uh, yeah they haven't found the bag and all that kind of stuff. There are moments where he really fucks up, yeah, despite being so in control. And the same with Pacino leaving the bullet casing behind. Well, also, uh, you know uh, that, that's a really good point, and I hadn't thought about that. But uh, you know, Pacino's obviously this great cop mm. who you study, mm. and he's obviously a successful author because mm. he's. Sold a bunch of books and he's bought this place. Yeah. And it's... Yeah. So, you know, they are in very much two men who have um, slipped. Yeah, absolutely. In, in, in awful ways, very different awful ways. Yeah. But uh, yeah. no wonder they end up getting entwined together. Uh, do, you, do you think when they're entwined to get like that wonderful... Uh, acting sequence on the on the barge on the ferry oh yeah when uh you know williams is drawing pacino tighter and tighter into this pack that they've made yeah do you think that pacino has a plan or do you think that he is genuinely going oh fuck it i'm in this situation and i gotta play along now i think he's i think he's going into it hoping to find a plan Mm. but but when williams pulls out the tape recorder yeah I think that's the moment where Pacino's like, I'm on this fucking ride. Oh, like, I yeah. can't get out of this now. Yeah. And I'm my fate is entwined with this guy. Oh, yeah. I have made so many mistakes. And there's, uh, there's, earlier on, there, there were probably times when he could have pulled out of it. Yeah. But once he gets into that death spiral, it's, it's on. And that's probably why, you know, the character does... Maybe, maybe him dying in the end is the right thing for uh, for it to happen mm. but i am a i am a little bit curious like i will have to watch the original now because there mm. is something kind of fascinating with an ending where 
it finishes with him flying back and you're thinking, man, what is what is about to happen yeah, to Yeah, that's life? true. I do, I do think the ending is more ambiguous than we might be giving it credit Maybe for. Maybe he doesn't die? No, I think he dies. But yeah. also, A, I think, going back to that whole original sin, yeah. that what he's really guilty about is what he originally did rather than killing his partner. Yeah. I think that he's already suffered. You know, when you... Yeah. You know, that... that that w- we've come into his life when he's already tortured right. and and wrecked by this thing. Otherwise, as we said, he wouldn't have gone on this whole ridiculous scheme to cover up the murder of his partner or the accidental murder of his partner. Um, but I think it's ambiguous, A, whether Hilary Swank's going to speak up. I personally think she will. I think she will too, because then that feeds into that's his redemption. Totally. But who's to say that she's going to be believed because they have no evidence that Pacino swapped out the bullets in the morgue. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not as cut and dry as, Oh, she's going to show the bullet and the the teenager is going to be exonerated. And you don't know. Well, the, the boss before was happy to scrunch things up. He's like, you're going to do that to a dead man. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Totally. You know, like, well, well, yeah, there's there's really nothing saying that this is going to end as nicely as we think. Absolutely. But I guess it's it's a movie about moral choices. Mm. So as long as she morally chooses Makes to right do the choice. right thing, she's going to be fine. Totally. She'll have a nice sleep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this movie focuses a lot on some of Nolan's signature themes like uh, isolation, mm-hmm. uh, disconnection, and definitely the, uh, uh, the fragility of the human mind. Um, Time. Does this kind of make it like perfect for people to go and rewatch it like it's yeah, like yeah, it's yeah, such yeah. a it's thematically it feels oh yeah everyone should get into this 100%, right now 100 percent. and i think it, it, it plays with time in the sense of it's, it's not playing with time in the linear sense but it's playing no. time in the i don't know what time it is yeah yeah you know i kept having to remind myself yeah when oh, he yeah, was i think he's been there six days yeah but it feels like it could have been 36 hours. Yeah, and also, like, is it daytime or is it nighttime? What yeah. the fuck is going on? Like, yeah. that scene where he goes and shoots that dog. <laughs> dog. Yeah, that must be I kept be having nighttime. to remind myself, oh, this is like 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, everyone's No one's asleep. around. Yeah. But it's, you know, you keep having to remind yourself yeah. we are not in the time. Or even that moment right at the beginning where he says, okay, let's go to the school. And they're laughing at him going, mate, it's 10 o'clock. Yeah. He's like, yeah, what's wrong with that? 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. You know, so there is still games with time happening. Yeah. It's just not in that tricksy Nolan way that we've uh, come to... Well, there's there's a subtlety to it, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and again, I think you're right that if he'd gone hard into it as he did with Memento, he would have been pigeonholed as the tricksy uh, yeah. time guy. Yeah, yeah. Then it would be like, ah, oh, you know, you, you kind of... I, I feel like uh, there's a few Shyamalan movies early on that if he wasn't the tricksy guy, people would enjoy them differently. But because they'd go in looking for totally him, looking for the trick, totally, then those movies are like, oh, worked it out. Oh, that was shit. Oh, or, I've got a, I've got a friend's mum who, or he claims that she picked the twist to the village just by watching the trailer, because by that stage people were so geared into oh, this is the guy that does yeah, the twist right. endings. Right. Yeah, and apparently so, she was sitting there watching the trailer. Goes, oh, I know how that ends. This is what's happening. Da, 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 da. Yeah, and then he right. went and saw it a week later and was like, "Oh my god, yeah. <laughs> she was right." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true though. Like, uh, yeah. yes, and that's not necessarily because the trailer did anything to give it away. Of she course. just went, "Well, okay, I've watched every episode of the Twilight Zone," and then you get totally. And the reason that those 
great twisty movies of the late 90s and early 2000s worked so much is because when you went into The Usual Suspects, you didn't know it had a twist ending. Yeah. When you went into The Sixth Sense, you didn't know it had a twist ending. No, no. You not... know, you, you got it at the end. It was like, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. Um, but the reason that the trick worked was because you weren't sitting there waiting for a trick. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. The same with Fight Club. I didn't yeah. know there was a twist in that no, when I first saw it at the cinema. And no. then was like, ooh. Mm-hmm. I'd project that I look like Brad Pitt too. <laughs> uh, but it's, um, yeah, it's it's fun watching this movie and seeing the the beginnings of uh, his career really taking form, you yeah. know. Um, Did you notice a lot of the uh, boom, 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 boom in the soundtrack? Yeah, well, it's the yeah. first time, you know. Uh, it's it's from it's the previous uh, guy that did the Memento oh, stuff. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it was a great score. Yeah, yeah, Fantastic it was really score. good. Yeah, and um, and also it's uh, once again very different films, but it builds on the existential drama of Memento yeah. of not knowing, like. Yeah. In Memento, he literally didn't know if he could believe anything, and in this one, it's. Uh, by the end, he just has no idea. So Completely. And also not knowing who you are. Yeah. Who you are anymore. Yeah. You had an idea of who you were, but who are you now? Yeah. Um, and that's where, you know, Pacino's character Dormer is. He's yeah. just like, he just doesn't know who he is yeah. after everything he's done. Yeah. It uh, it feels like it's, uh, in many ways, Nolan's uh, subtlest film. Mm. And, um, you know, he's a man on the edge. As you said before, we even see him. There's probably been a lack. He's probably had insomnia already. Yeah. Um, And would you would you say that maybe the reason it's not remembered as much is because it's so uh, so subtle compared to other films that you kind of can easily forget all the great little things that happen within it. Yeah, I think I think there's something to that. I think it also just gets lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Because Memento was, I mean, no one can overstate how much of an impact Memento had when it came out. Yeah. It was one of those, like, holy shit films. Yeah. And then Batman comes straight after. Yeah. Insomnia. And so I just, I just think it just gets lost in the mix. Yeah. Well, a little bit like The Prestige gets a little bit lost between the Batman films yeah. as well. Yeah. 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 The uh, it's it's fascinating watching the editing as well because as the movie wears on, it feels like the editing becomes more haphazard yeah. and and really culminates in that near car crash that doesn't happen. Oh, when he th- when he hallucinates yeah. the truck coming towards him, yeah. fucking hell! Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, that that moment of him. Yeah. you're thinking, oh my god, is he, is he going to have an accident? And then he's looking back and forth up the street, <laughs> and there's nothing around. And it's like, oh man. You need to uh, stop driving. I thought filmically it depicted sleep deprivation very well. Yeah. Because I don't know how long, what's the longest you've ever been awake for? Uh, I was awake uh, 52 hours for my 30th birthday. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and it's true. By the end, tricks of the light and that weird paranoia that sets in oh, and yeah. the jumping at things that aren't there. And yeah. I thought the way that, the, you know, they would have those little. Yeah. Cut, uh, cross edits that would yeah. happen yeah. perfectly, you know, kind of encapsulated that headspace. Yeah, those little flashes out. from the, yeah, from the corners of your eye. Yeah. I couldn't shut the fuck up. I actually had uh, a friend of mine tell me <laughs> to stop talking because it was too much. Hello, Will Anderson, you if you're listening. <laughs> 
wonder if you were making sense. Maybe with like some Zen nah, master. No, nah, I, I was babbling. just stream of consciousness, and, and even Will got to a point where he said, "Mate, you just need to stop talking." <laughs> and I was like, "It's been fifty-two hours. I might go to bed." Uh, happy thirtieth birthday, Hamo! And um, could you turn this into an ongoing TV series? Insomnia. Personally, I don't think so. No. Only because it seems to be... I mean, I guess in that Fargo way you could. Yeah. Um, but to me, the the insomnia is so much a metaphor for this guy's guilt. Yeah, you can't have... You can't do that. It's a new season of yeah. someone who's tired. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Or, or, or their guilt manifesting as a different neurological disorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder, uh, maybe as a one-off, could it have been like a... Six-part, one-off series. Oh yeah, you could expand yeah. on it. Absolutely, yeah. You could expand on the on the town and the world and all of it. Yeah, you could do flashbacks to him as a. Oh well, you know, maybe maybe it is an anthology. Imagine going back and seeing him as a younger cop. Oh yeah, <laughs> as like the great cop that's not real with guilt. Yeah, you know, and then contrast that against you know the the man that we have today. It would be fun to. Um, that would actually be fun knowing where he ends up and seeing him as idealistic and really on top of his game yeah and, you know yeah, yeah like a Corleone kind of uh, transformation oh yeah yeah oh god like the, <laughs> the, the ultimate Pacino so handsome in it as well and so terrifying what a blend in Godfather yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say maybe not so much in Insomnia oh no no time no. And, uh, yeah. and and lack of sleep has weathered the man oh yeah but yeah he is terrifying well, I still remember that first time I saw the final shot of The Godfather, yeah. when I was, whatever, 18, I don't remember much from the first viewing, but I remember that so clearly, and yeah. like my entire body turning to chills, oh, just, yeah. oh god, oh, awful. Awful, this is awful. Great. Um, <laughs> get, get, getting back to my theory of Sea of Love and Insomnia bookending yeah. each other, there's also... You know, in Insomnia, there's that great scene, as we talked about, him trying to get to sleep and chewing the chewing gum and that. In Sea of Love, it's him as a fucking alcoholic ringing his ex-wife. Denise, Denise. Yeah, I'm just ringing up. How are, how are you doing? You know, I think I've, I think I've got a pain in my back. Click. Like, how many oh, times Pacino. has he called? How many times <laughs> has he called? And then Richard Jenkins is now, you know, then he has to go and apologise to Richard Jenkins, who's the cop that's now with his wife. You know, I'm just going through something, you know. <laughs> and then he gets drunk and then starts a fight. And then you've got John Goodman. It's, you know what, we should talk about Sea of Love. Haunted Pacino is great. Where does um, cruising fall in cruising, Pacino's career? Cruising is... Is that, is that in that period? No, cruising so. is early 1980 or something like that. So that's kind of like around... So he has those string of unbelievable movies yeah. and then towards the like it's revolution and you know he kind of yeah i think scarface is around that time you know i think yeah, scarface sure. might be the jumping off point of and then he goes and does theater sure. and then you hadn't seen him for a while and then he comes back and see of love and you and he's like looking a bit older and yeah and you're right. going wow and ellen yeah, barkin is uh i reckon it is top three sexiest actors I've ever seen, seen on the big screen. Movie in a fucking long time. Is that the one where he gets his ass out? Um, I don't know. I think you get a bit of naked Pacino and see of Love. Maybe you do. There's a, there's a pretty full on sex scene. Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. you do. And she is. That's the one with the red and someone fell off a building or something. Is this the movie I'm thinking of? Uh, 
I can't think of what that is. Maybe no. That's I'm thinking of a fucking Bruce Willis cop movie around, oh, made around right. the same time. Right, right, right. I was going to say I can't yeah, really yeah, picture yeah. that. No, um, Ellen Barkin just has uh. like if you looked in the dictionary and up the word Moxie. It's Ellen Barker. Fantastic. You know, and she is. I love Moxie. She's so, so good. And then, <laughs> and the, even the finale, there's a bit where they're walking down the street doing a scene and it's, it's right at the end and uh, like an extra fucking plows through Pacino and then he bounces back and stays in character and, and they, funnily enough, he's trying to win her back and she kind of smiles at that moment and he kind of laughs and keeps going and you go, that wasn't in the script, but I can see why you've kept it because that was funny, mm. and and now I believe that maybe you can, yeah, right, Beautiful. win her back because yeah. she just kind of smiled at some extra fucking bowling <laughs> through Pacino and nearly taking him out. <laughs> yeah, Pacino died. Some extra just ran over him. That's great. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it was it was fun to go back to this film mm-hmm. and. Um, I've got. I've already gone through a lot of uh, the squid bits, but uh, I'll just throw this out there. The there's so much of it that feels like Batman Begins. The mm-hmm. the, the shots of the um, landscape mm. look like where the League of Shadows are. Yeah, you know? and also reminded me of um, Interstellar uh, on the, um, the yes, planet of Doctor Man. Yes, it really did. Yes, yeah. and the uh, the fog scene feels a bit like the end of. Uh, Batman Begins totally. as well, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, so it's a really like if you haven't seen it, I reckon it's really worthwhile going. And, he, and you're a fan, mm. it's really worthwhile going back and. I think it's top tier Nolan. I really yeah. do. I really do. It's um, you know, for me, there's only two perfect Nolan films. Oh yeah, and of course, it's always subjective, isn't it? But no, uh, no, but you said for you, yeah, for me, for yeah. me, there's two. I reckon there's only ten perfect Nolan. Films. <laughs> How many is it? Like, Uh-oh. <laughs> for, for me, there's two where it's like, I can, I can watch them start to finish a thousand times and they're perfect for me. And I can't, there's nothing in it that makes me go, eh, hey, whatever. Right. Um, but this is up there. I, yeah. I don't think it's like perfect, perfect. There's a couple of moments where I'm a bit like, oh, it's a bit arch or whatever. Well, but I do think it is criminally underrated. Yeah. And I like, funnily enough, my... My only kind of criticism of the movie is, I would have liked a little bit more of it. Oh, well, that's not a, the, the, that's, that's not a that's, what, that's, that's a compliment. Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> don't uh, leave. You know, it's like, I'd like to have seen more of the relationship with the hotel manager, yeah. whatever that. You know, just like when I say relationship, mm. that friendship, or yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. you know, I I would like to have seen a little bit more of Hillary Swank and yeah. you know those you know like yeah. one of the like there's um. I don't know the actor's name, but the, there's the young male cop who obviously has a bit of attitude towards yeah. Pacino, yeah. and he only has a few scenes. But I feel like I know that guy. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Well it's, he, a, it's a really good uh, like. I mean, the character. Is yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, I recognise that guy. But he has a he has a mini arc within the movie yeah. because he gains respect for Pacino. He's the one laughing, going, "Oh man, you need to get some sleep." Yeah, and Pacino's yeah, yeah. sitting there. Blah. Whereas when you first <laughs> meet him, he's very standoffish yeah. and quite like, oh, "Who the fuck this guy?" Yeah. Um, funnily enough, I think we get the perfect amount of Robin Williams. I didn't oh. need any more Robin Williams. No. And that's not a slide on his performance. No, 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 but no. I, you no, know, you don't need any more. Don't need any more. And, and I love that a lot of his performance is off camera. Yes. Fantastic. And also, uh, look at the hands on my arms sticking up. <laughs> a really creepy scene when Pacino gets 
nearly gets crushed by the logs and pulls <laughs> out of the water. And he looks over and just the way, yeah, just the way he sh- that Nolan has shot him and the way he's standing just looking and it's like, oh my yeah. god, that is, I don't know how you did it, yeah, but that is some creepy shit. Well, it's it's you realize in that moment that Robin Williams's character is happy either way. He would have been happy for Pacino to drown and get his head smashed in by those logs, but he's also happy that the game keeps going. Yeah. There's something kind of like... He's uh, happy for the attention. Yeah, there's a weird kind of zen to him that is very unsettling uh, in contrast to how deep in the shit he is. Yeah. And he's kind of clever, but he's not as clever as he thinks Thinks he he is, is, which is really noticeable in the... when he comes in to talk. And, you know, Pacino's already told him not to mention things yeah and, yeah, yeah. Uh, or even having the dress in his house oh, when yeah. hillary swank and, and even that whole plan when he yeah when he whacks hillary swank it's like well what do you think's gonna happen now they know yeah. that she's driven to your fucking house yeah we're gonna kill her now like what yeah. are you doing yeah and he, like he clearly has no plan he's when, just improvising as he goes yeah. but it's you know it's all starting to cave in on him yeah yeah uh before we go any any last thoughts on uh on the movie no, I feel, I just, as I've said, I just feel like it's dangerously underrated. Yeah. And it's been lost in the shuffle. Yeah. And I think it really is up there with, I mean, it's hard to say the best of Nolan because everything that Nolan does is great. Yeah. But so, I mean, and you know, ranking and lists are arbitrary. Yeah. But I do think it's it, it's really up there. I think Robin Williams, uh, you know, uh I say this with the caveat that this just might have been a news article that kind of got swapped around the magazines at the time, but I think he was kind of petitioning to be the Joker in The Dark Knight. And, uh, really? So I don't know if that could easily have been, hey, you worked with Christopher Nolan and he's going to be making a sequel to Batman and uh, who do you think should play the Joker, do you think? Yeah. And then, you, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it could have been that or maybe he really was... Pitching. I know in the in the Burton years he was really really petitioning to play a villain. Right. Uh, I I I always heard it was Riddler. Right. Or Mad Hatter. I feel like I heard the Riddler as well. Yeah. You know, uh, if he had been in a Batman movie, yeah. do you think it would have been? Because I I think he'd be a great Penguin. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I always thought that the Penguin could work in the and for. For anyone who would like to get some really nerdy shit and head over to my website, justinhamilton.com.au, where I've written a three-part fan fiction <laughs> follow-up to the Nolan... <laughs> I've, I've performed them at the New Zealand show, Fan Fiction Comedy. Oh, great. And, um, I've still got to tell you my fan fiction. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you off mic. Okay. Well, no, no, no. Is it a Batman story? Yeah, it's a Batman story. I oh. think it's well, it's a great Batman story. Let, let's save it for Batman. All but right. uh, the I always thought that the... Um, Robin Williams. Uh, I always thought the Penguin would be like the infuriating moniker that the papers gave him. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So you play him as a real gangster, yeah, and he's he's you know they they insult him by calling him the Penguin. Ah, oh, that's great. I, I there's a great uh, website called the Mindless Ones. Uh, oh you yeah, would yeah. Fucking love it. Is that a is that a Morrison kind of site? They they they're very obsessed with Morrison. Yeah. But one of the I great articles that they wrote, it's a series of where they reimagined Batman villains, right? Just to make them like super interesting. Um, and they often pick villains that 
writers don't seem to really know what to do with. Right. Uh, and one of their interpretations of the Penguin is that he's the funhouse mirror version of Bruce Wayne. So he wants oh, to be right. this aristocratic, yeah. you know, guy. But yeah. unfortunately, he's dumpy and fat and short, and so he's never taken seriously. And that's his main motivating factor. That's great. That he wants to be taken seriously, but no one ever will. Well, that kind of fits in, doesn't yeah. it, to yeah. that yeah. idea. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I've just written down a note, uh, and I'll save it for the Dark Knight Rises uh, edition of this mm-hmm. podcast. The, but the, the four-hour episode. Yeah, yeah. the... Um, I uh, had um, – have I ever told you about the dream that I had where I literally dreamt that I saw the third movie before The Dark Knight Rises came out? No. Yeah. I'll save it for the – but it was one of those things where I wake up and I was like, wow, I just – I just saw a Nolan movie that no one else is going to see, <laughs> and it was great. And I and I uh, even part of the dream was leaving the cinema. Oh, great! And talking like that was fantastic. And then waking up, going, "Oh, that was just for me." Thanks, dream Nolan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for projecting that into my mind, dream man. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. I think this is uh, an underrated film. Yep. Well worth yep. checking out again. Just an underrated. I mean, forget about just Nolan. Just an underrated film. Yeah, absolutely. Just an underrated, great, twisty, turny, yeah. you know, mystery film. Good to see Robin Williams, yeah. you know, performing again. No fat. It's, 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 it's clean. It's just clean two hours. Yeah. It never drags. It's yeah. a fucking great, oh, and tight film. Like Martin Donovan's in it for not not that long, but he's so good as his partner. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah you know, yeah. and he's in... Um, it's funny, I... This is how much I under underrate insomnia is watching the trailer to tenet again and was like oh there's oh he's brought back martin donovan oh, cool. in it so yeah. it's like oh yeah if he was good he, he deserves a bit longer on screen yeah great <laughs> yeah 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 no it's a fantastic film yeah yeah i uh i hardly recommend uh don't watch it when you're tired <laughs> Arrive at the end of the podcast. <laughs> a massive thank you to Rachel Brown for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk to me about Trace. At this point, there are three episodes of the new season up and running, so make certain you jump on board for what is already turning out to be a fascinating story. A big thank you to Ben Elwood, as always, and I have to give a shout out to Ben and Cameron James for their hilarious screening of Cats at the Hayden Orpheum last week. What an absolutely funny night and it was an incredibly cathartic experience to sit in a cinema and yell at a screen with a bunch of people it's just nice to sit in a cinema to be honest even if we were having to watch fucking cats (laughs) uh the next movie i'm seeing is uh let me just uh check my notes it's a a little movie called tenet Hmm. No idea what that will be like, but I'll be back next week with a spoiler-free review and some new guests. Maybe at the start I'll do a spoiler-free review and then maybe I'll throw something on at the end if you want to avoid spoilers. Anyway, let me go and see it 150-11 times over the weekend and then I'll make a decision on how I'm going to have a little chat to you about that. But I promise I will not ruin anything for you because I know people are in different parts of the world and who knows when you'll get to see it. So I'll share the love without ruining it for you. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a top review on whichever platform you use. People are still a little bit uncertain if this is a weekly podcast now. Uh, People are still a little bit confused. That's my fault. I started off as seasonal. Then it doesn't have any guests. And now it's weekly with stacks of guests. I take the blame for that. So any help is appreciated. If you would uh, like to share it with people who you think would enjoy it as well, please do so. Uh, Remember, if you want to chat with me and other like-minded individuals from all over the world, you can find us at the open and private Facebook page for Big Squid. The open page is fun, uh, but the private page is uh, a place to chat without worrying about spoilers. So come and join the club. Uh, You can also find blogs and short stories that I have written over at my site, justinhamilton.com.au. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you and your loved ones are safe. Keep listening to the experts. Block out anyone motivated by anything other than your health and safety and stay in touch with those friends you think might be isolated in these times of need. We were talking about Robin Williams earlier, so I'm going to leave you with a quote from the comedy genius. No matter what people tell you, words and ideas can change the world. Remember to keep reading, listening and watching, and hopefully you'll come across an idea that will inspire your world. Until then. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.